listening to that Jesus podcast. Well, hello there. You have found yourself listening to that Jesus podcast, whether you meant to or not. Titus, how's it going? Hello, Drew. <laughs> we This is our second take. The first one got a little bit lost there, and all he heard was help from me, which I guess is appropriate since this is coming out on Halloween week, right? Yeah, we're all getting ready to go to a hell house to convert our children, are we not? No. Did you actually ever do that? Did you ever do one of those? Like, I, growing up, they had Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, where, like, you watch a, a person who just barely refused to accept Jesus um, end up in a car crash and burning forever yeah. in hell, and they kind of dramatize that. So I was sort of Is that a... something you're familiar with? Yeah, I was sort of a, a youth pastor at an evangelical church for a hot minute, and my sheep wanted to go to a scare mare. So we went to a Christian scare mare, which, I mean, it was it was moderately scary. And then at the end, someone tried to share the gospel to us, and it was really bad. What's a scare mare? I've never heard of it. Is that like a scare nightmare? Scare mare... No, it's just like a, a scary house. You go through it and get scared. But what's the mare? Is it a horse or? Um, I, I mean, there's marathons, so maybe it's a similar etymology there, but no one really cares. Yeah, I, I looked this up, um, Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Uh, they're still going strong. Reality Outreach Ministries. So if you believe in the reality they're selling, then I guess it's a ministry. It costs $4,450 to host them at your church. Three presentations. So that's, you know, like, what, 1200 or something a night? That's Well, that's the bank. cost of uh, eternal soul is priceless. So I would say it's worth it. Yeah, so I was talking to somebody who was um, enjoying our podcast, but noted that she was telling me that she thinks that Titus is so often sarcastic, it's sometimes hard until you've listened for a little while to recognize that you're being sarcastic. So you're not actually pro scaring people to heaven, right? Or are you? This this is actually a tactic to get people to listen to a lot of our podcasts. I'm not going to give that away, dear listener. <laughs> if you want to know if, when and if I'm being sarcastic, you're just going to have to keep listening and you're going to have to try to to um, you know, really stay on your toes. So, I'm going to leave it at that. So, so I, if I understand correctly, you are not an eternal conscious torment adherent. Is that right? No. And there's currently a meme battle on Facebook about this topic. I've noticed there's quite a few more conditional immortality people around than, than there used to be. I don't know if people are converting or if the ECT people are just leaving the, the meme universe on Facebook. But I'm, I'm kind of pleased about that. But I was actually just talking to someone about this today. And and stick with me here a little bit. Okay. Uh, you, you, Drew, and, and especially dear listener who's about to be offended. But Okay, I, I believe Turn in conditional, up, conditional immortality. I, I believe that's what Scripture teaches. Um, Edward Fudge, Chris Date, and lots of other people like Preston Sprinkle have done a lot of good work. Can I just so, interrupt for one second? Conditional uh -huh. immortality is the view that life comes from God. And so if you're separated from God, you no longer have life. And so this is contrary to the view that God somehow keeps souls alive even after they've died in order to experience 
eternal conscious torment. So conditional immortality rejects eternal conscious torment and holds that at the end of time or at the end of some point, souls will just cease to exist as they are cut off from their source of life. Carry on. Immortality is conditional on whether or not you believe in the Son of God, right? It's what the Bible teaches. So I I do think it's what the Bible teaches, but I I also think it's it's an important conversation because your view of this reflects um, on your view of God and and what you're telling other people God is like. So we, we as Christians believe that the center of the universe is love, right? And that that love is God. God is love. That if, if you want to define who God is, in one word, you would say love, according to First John, right? Mm-hmm. According to the, the whole Bible. So it's the most important tenet of our faith. And and God's character is, is the most important manifestation of that, All right? That's, that's Christianity 101. Okay. Now, I want, I want you to think, from a deity's perspective, what is the most unloving thing that you could do with your power, with your limitless, infinite power? What, what is the, the, the most unloving thing you could do? I, I would posit that the most unloving thing that an, an infinitely powerful deity could do to his creatures mm-hmm. is to torment them infinitely like mm-hmm. that th- <laughs> there's nothing more unloving that that this deity could do than to do that um it, it's and even if like even if the punishment the pain isn't very bad in hell like if it's a net negative that goes on for eternity that's an infinitely bad punishment i don't i don't think we can can even wrap our minds around what that is. And and to think that like if if the path is broad that leads to dis- destruction that our creator is going to make the majority of humans and then torment them forever. I don't think the word love means anything. You you can punt and say, "Oh, but you know God's <laughs> definition of love is beyond our understanding. Okay, sure, but then let's stop using the word love because clearly we don't know what love is at that point. Like, if that's love, then then what I think of as love, like, is meaningless. Like, every, the whole universe is absurd. If the center of the universe is self-giving love and that self-giving love torments most of his creatures for eternity, then the whole universe is absurd. Yeah, um... I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> like, <laughs> our topic today actually isn't um, about the nature of hell, although I think you're quite eloquent in in bringing that side out. Um, uh, just to just to kind of push on the other side, I think a lot of people look at scripture and say, you know, that there are quite a few proof texts that a lot of people would wrestle with and feel like you're just dismissing. So that's one thing. Like the scriptural data, some would feel really lays in favor of eternal conscious torment, or let's just say eternity for all souls, redeemed or not. Secondly, I think people would say, we understand love only as we understand the character of God. And so to take our to take our view of love and then apply it to God and say, oh, it doesn't fit, so God can't be like this, is actually judging God based on our standards of love. Um 
Well, I'm in not that sure. Case, like, is that how you would use the term love? Is tormenting no. people forever? <laughs> no, like, I does like anyone second, view that as love? <laughs> I feel like the second argument is somewhat tautological. For me, uh, something pivotal in understanding the nature of judgment was reading. This is kind of embarrassing um, because it's very much not a book about theology as such um and i have lots of issues with the book but reading the great divorce by c.s lewis it was pretty pivotal to realize that it's not like god is just capriciously arbitrarily choosing for us to experience some kind of torment but there's a sense of the natural consequence and the natural result of rejecting christ is is to fall away from him and if you can square that kind of natural consequence in with eternal conscious torment, then we're off to the races. If you can't, and it seems like God is being capricious, petty, arbitrary, and sadistic, then you have a problem. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think this is a good conversation well, happy, too. Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you guys celebrate Halloween out there in Virginia? No. No? Um, yeah, and we don't either. Um I don't like Halloween that terribly much, um, but I also understand that some people do it pretty innocently. Like, I used to celebrate Halloween. I still remember trick-or-treating with my family way back in the day. But, yeah. Anyhow, what are we talking about today, Titus? For real. Yeah, this this got dark very fast, which is very appropriate <laughs> to this So season. let's bring some light. Um, we are having a conversation with Dr. Barbara Peacock on her book entitled Soul Care in African-American Studies, I think, something mm-hmm. like that. And if she listens to this intro, she's going to be like, man, <laughs> I don't know I don't know what she believes about hell, but <laughs> this, this uh, was an interesting intro for the, the topic at hand, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, a, recent, a recent episode we did, um, the guest said something, or not, the, it wasn't the guest that was sharing it, it was a, a friend of mine that was sharing it. And she's like, this is a really good conversation about um, parenting, and you should listen to it. They talk about other stuff, and it's not really interesting at the beginning, but listen to it. Like, after about 12 minutes, go ahead and listen to it. And after that, it's really good. So, um, there you go. <laughs> well, we're about at 12 minutes, so that should yeah. be our... Well, let's turn it over that, to a that doctor. Is our, that is our cue to turn it over to the good doctor. Yep. Today we're joined by Dr. Barbara Peacock. Dr. Peacock holds a Doctorate of Ministry from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Her dissertation was in Spiritual Direction and Soul Care, and she's the author of Soul Care in African American Practice, which I really enjoyed listening to on Audible a few weeks ago. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Peacock. Thank you so much for having me, Titus, and I look forward to our time together today. Absolutely. So just to get to know you a little bit, in, in the book you mentioned that you grew up on a farm and that the, the sort of environment you experienced there set you up well for a contemplative life. So could you speak a little bit to that? Yes. Um, Titus, I grew up on a farm that had every imaginable animal. Uh, we had cows and pigs and horses and cats and dogs and chickens we even had a billy goat. <laughs> nice. And uh, sometimes we would have a turtle. 
But growing up on the farm was a blessing. Not only did we have animals, we had all kinds of trees. And back in the early 1900s, our great-grandfather purchased 120-plus acres in Columbus County down in Whiteville. We don't have all of that land now, but we do have a remaining 25 acres there. Nice. And you just took so many things for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was like a mile to walk to get to the school bus. So we had to go along this little dirt road to get to the school bus. But uh, we didn't have a lot of uh, modern technology. We didn't have televisions. We didn't have running water. We didn't have a lot of the uh, conveniences that so many other people had. But out of that, I now understand that was my contemplative upbringing. I remember listening to the frogs. I remember listening to the barking of the dog. I remember listening to the meow of the cat and the mooing of the cow and the onking of the pig. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. in a book. It was right there on the ground. I remember picking from the various fruit trees and the many vegetables and crops that we grew. And so there really was no other choice than to have a reflective and contemplative life. But one thing I always enjoyed doing was listening to music and reading. So Mm -hmm. when uh, I look at my life, one thing I'm a big proponent of is the writing of one spiritual autobiography. So when I look at my life and connect the dots, I see that then God was preparing me to understand the gifting of silence, the gifting of meditation and contemplation. The power of prayer. I grew up in a a spiritual family. And I am just so thankful for the roots that God blessed me with. Yeah. I mean, there's so much noise nowadays. Like, (laughs) I'm sure you didn't have any, any phones to distract you, whereas people who grew up in today's world, like, just we're all just glued to our phones and it's I think it's just so much harder to have a clear mind when you come to prayer if you grew up in that sort of an environment like it's really challenging for my wife and I because you know we have a three-year-old and two-year-old twins wow and so putting them in front of the tv is is a great way to to get a free babysitter for a while um but definitely especially as they get older i want to try to create that sort of space for them to be in nature as well yes indeed indeed and and the way you bring them up and the way you train them is so important one of the habits i had as a mother is i no matter how tired i was i would read a bedtime story to our daughter Mm -hmm. and our daughter now has uh, a 15 year old and an eight year old and she my daughter her husband they live in the boston area and she she still reads bedtime stories to them so she uh she's doing what she saw her mother do but she also has quite a bit of quiet time because even with her growing up she did not have a lot of television time so um, children need to be able to uh, be creative, and as soon as you start putting those books in front of them, the sooner they'll start reading. But I totally understand. I mean, <laughs> with my daughter trying to uh, teach her children to have more quiet time, sometimes that television does uh, <laughs> really quiet. I understand that. I understand that. Yeah. And there's a lot to be said for that because as adults, they're going to live in uh, a noisy world. It's just the world. Mm-hmm. It's just a fact of the world we live in. But just the implementation of those things, I think, is very important. Yeah, for sure. That was my mother note to you. <laughs> okay, thank you. I appreciate it. We, we actually did an episode on, on parenting recently because I, I can use all the help I can get. Because you don't give a one shot at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, for sure. 
Yeah, so what led you to write a book on spiritual formation, especially from a historic African-American perspective? Um, that's an approach that I don't know. I don't know that I've seen it anywhere else. Like, are you the first person to pioneer that? Yeah, I'm pretty much a pioneer. When I was pursuing my uh, doctorate at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, we had to choose our focus for our thesis, and I was committed to writing about prayer and spiritual direction. I really wanted to know more about spiritual direction. And uh, when I met with my professor, mentor, spiritual director, uh, Dr. David Curry there at uh, Gordon, he recommended that I write about spiritual direction from an African-American perspective, and I really resisted. And I told him that I did not want to write anything from an African-American perspective because I did not want my book to get dusty on the shelves of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And uh, he kind of left it alone. And afterwards, I went and spent some time in prayer, and I just felt the unctioning to write about uh, prayer and spiritual direction from an African-American perspective. And that's Mm -hmm. how I started. And so I completed my doctorate in 2013, and I thought I was done. And then in uh, 2018, I felt a nudging from the Lord to write a book. And I pursued that. And afterwards, the rest is history. God opened the doors and I knew that I had to write about our spirituality as a people. Before we get going, we've, we've used some terms already that I'm sure some of them are familiar with our listeners, but some of them might be somewhat unfamiliar. So... I thought we could define terms a little bit, starting with with a term that most people probably know what we mean when we use this term, spiritual disciplines, and then we'll go and and define two other terms that might be even more unfamiliar. But could you start with spiritual disciplines? What do we mean when we use that term? Well, spiritual disciplines are practices that are designed for us to have a closer relationship with God. And everything that we are encouraging people to participate in points back to the Bible, points back to the journey and life of Jesus. If Jesus didn't do it, then we really don't need to be doing it. Jesus practiced a a multiplicity of spiritual disciplines, prayer, silence, solitude, meditation, rest. So there are a plethora of spiritual disciplines. Some of the most uh, prominent ones we know is the discipline of prayer. We have to discipline ourselves to pray. Mm-hmm. And we must be mindful that prayer is two-way communication. I think we spend a lot of time talking to God, but listening is as important, if not more important, to hear what God has to say to us. Another uh, discipline that we practice is we should be practicing rest. The Bible mm-hmm. says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On six days, God gives us to work. On the seventh day, we are to rest. So rest is a commandment. A Sabbath is a commandment. Participating in a season of jubilee, that is God's desire for his people. So spiritual disciplines are practices. Uh, they are forms to spend time with God and to grow you and to develop you to be a better disciple. Yeah, so that last phrase you used, growing and developing us into better disciples, is that how you would define spiritual formation then? Um, That might be a a little more unfamiliar. Um, I I know some of my friends and I have also used the the term Christoformity, like being formed into the image of Christ. Is that kind of the idea there? Uh, They could be used uh, similarly. Um, Mm -hmm. Spiritual formation, I like to say, is just what it says. (laughs) 
It's the formation of the spirit of God within you. It's out of out of the spiritual disciplines comes the spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. In order to be to be formed, I have to be disciplined to be made in the image of God to uh, to look more like Christ, to represent Jesus more on the earth. I think about the passage in uh, Matthew 6, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. So that's representing Christ on earth. But Paul also tells us in Romans 12 to, to not be conformed, to, to, to don't give in to the ways of the world, to, but to be transformed to, to into the image of God, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So the mind and the soul are the, are the spaces that we're seeking to form to represent Christ and the triune God even the more. Spiritual formation. I also think about uh, the passage in Jeremiah when uh, God told the potter to go down to the house and to put this uh, this vessel of clay on the wheel and to mold it and to shape it because the, the, the vessel is marred. So, so God is continuously... Uh, rolling out forming us on the wheel to be more like him yeah the wheel of life yeah yeah so how about spiritual direction then i think that one might be the most off-putting right and and i think you use it interchangeably with soul care what do you mean by spiritual direction and soul care well, soul care is such an ambiguous word in this day and time. People use the terminology soul care to refer to self-care, but self-care and soul care are not the same. We can have self-care without having soul care, but we can't have soul care without having self-care. Mm-hmm. Self-care is taking care of the self. Exercise, eating good, hair, Nails, all of the things, self, taking care of self. Soul is taking care of that very inner being. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2, 7, that God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. He became a living being. So the soul is all of us. But when we look at soul care and spiritual direction, I, I, I like you said, I use the term synonymously in the book. Mm-hmm. And I like to say in the, a short definition for soul care and spiritual direction is loving, listening, loving, listening. A longer definition of spiritual direction and soul care is sitting with a person or groups of people to help them better discern the activity and voice of God. Understanding that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate spiritual director. And just like mentor, mentee, we have a director, directee. And I believe a relationship with a spiritual director is one that everyone should have. And it should be a lifelong experience because we need that counsel. Uh, Proverbs 25 says, counsel in the heart of a person is like deep water, but a person of understanding will draw it out. The spiritual director's assignment is to draw it out, to listen and to help that person see and discern God's voice. What is God saying? It's not coaching. It's not mentoring. It's not psychiatry. It's not psychology. It's loving listening of God's voice. Yeah. So you're a spiritual director, right? Do you have sessions with people? Like, how do we sign up? (laughs) 
oh yes i have sessions actually right before this call uh titus i was meeting with spiritual directors across the country uh as we are working with our institute peacock soul care which is an institute that offers certification in spiritual direction and um spiritual formation there are two-year programs but you do sign up with a spiritual director and the spiritual director uh, is covered is protected you sign a statement of confidentiality and mm-hmm. spiritual direction is coming becoming more and more popular because a director is not trying to get you to be the, the vice president of the company or to make six figures the director is there to help you walk closer with god yeah so how is that different from the work of a pastor of a local church then? A pastor can be a spiritual director, but a pastor, most pastors aren't spiritual directors. Uh, depending upon the size of a congregation, I guess, will determine some of the uh, responsibilities a pastor can participate in. But at the church we are currently involved in, we have a spiritual director on staff. And okay. spiritual directors are trained. They just don't pop up. They are trained. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have, it's not uncommon for a person with a master or two masters or a person with a bachelor's or a person with a doctorate or two doctorates to go mm-hmm. back and get a certificate for spiritual direction because they realize not only is that a journey they would like to travel within themselves, but they would also like to walk alongside other people. And, and in some ways, it uh, it's a blessing to have that certification in their profession. So a pastor mm-hmm. is is not a certified spiritual director unless he or she goes for that certification. But yeah. more likely, more pastors, more than likely pastors are not spiritual directors. Yeah, they're kind of like CEOs in a lot of <laughs> cases. <laughs> um, but so, so a pastor might get like a a degree in theology and that sort of thing, but mm-hmm. spiritual directors are trained more in, in spiritual disciplines. Is that is that an oversimplification probably? But uh, Spiritual directors are trained to listen. They're trained to hear. They're trained mm-hmm. to discern. They're trained to pray. They're trained to be more than do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, so let, let's get into your book a bit. Um, it, you kind of track the African-American experience of, of spirituality, and, and you start that journey at a very interesting place in the middle passage where enslaved persons were transported from Africa to North America, and, and you talk about their spirituality in those slave ships, how they identified with the sufferings of Christ there. Um, could you share a little more about that? Yes. One of the questions that my professors asked me in my defense was when did spiritual direction for people of African American, of African descent begin? Mm-hmm. And actually Titus right there on the spot, God just gave me the revelation. And that's the revelation that I share in this book. There had to be an entry point for the conception of spiritual direction for African-Americans. So I sense that inception point being the middle passage in the transatlantic. People mm-hmm. that were taken from the west coast of Africa, even though they were taken from many parts of Africa, but they were shipped from the west coast of Africa. They came through the middle passage. They came through the Caribbean. 
They came through South America and they landed in North America on the East Coast. So I would like to read, if you don't mind, sure. a sharing that uh, I have, and it's on page 14 mm-hmm. in the book. And it reads, even while stowed like animals below deck, they saw the shining North Star of God with upturned eyes of faith, looking out spiritual portals. While in chains, many slaves expressed great faith in God. The only one who could deliver them from such inhumane circumstances. Many were infected with ferocious diseases, including respiratory ailments and fevers that accompanied infections. Moans and groans penetrated the atmosphere as a result of pain, sickness, sorrow, and loss. No doctors were there to prescribe medications or apply appropriate salves. No preachers were there to perform eulogies. No food was there to fill hungry bellies in the midnight hour. During these challenging hours and days on slave ships, many Africana fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and cousins were attentive toward each other's weary, tired, and wounded souls. Many times their conversations kept them alive. Care, love, and prayerful conversation were the best prescription for the oppressed. Imagine strangers listening to, caring for, and encouraging one another in such conditions. See them holding one another even as they died. All too often, Death was inevitable and at times considered a more comforting option than life. Those who lived expressed their faith by believing and trusting God that a better day would come. It was on those slave ships making the middle passage that we find the origins of African-American spiritual direction and soul care. Even though the intent was to destroy black people and to strip them of their heritage, God's divine hand prevailed. In the midst of the most inhumane conditions, the slaves were strengthened by their spirituality. Wow, that's that's powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, yeah, a- another historical touch point um, in, in the journey of African American spirituality that that you discuss in the book is their their secret prayer times that they would have. Um, 
because in, in many cases their masters did not wanting them to meet to pray, knowing that that would strengthen them and, and encourage them to not cooperate with that sort of oppression. Um, could you describe some of those secret meetings? What, what took place there? You know, so many thoughts are going through my mind. A book can only contain a certain amount of information. One of the things that I'm thinking about, Titus, is the land that I grew up on, the farm. And we had what we called a wash pot. I don't know if you know what a wash pot is. A kettle? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what a wash pot is. That's that's close enough. That's close (laughs) enough. It's, it's It's a big black pot that you would put uh, chips and wood underneath and you would put water in it uh, to boil, to wash clothes or to cook something if you were cooking outside. Okay. But that was what we used it for. That was practical for us. But for our foreparents, It was used for other things because the pot must have been about, I guess, 24 inches wide, round in diameter. And maybe about 24 or maybe a few more inches tall. And it was iron. And so... The slaves, now these pots were used for, hot water was used for slaughtering animals and cooking and things like I Mm -hmm. shared. But the slaves would use that pot for what they would call a hush pot. And the hush pot meant that if they held their face in it, it would buffer the sound. Mm Mm-hmm. And they knew they had to buffer the sound of their worship or to keep quiet because if their master discovered that they were worshiping their God Mm -hmm. and not worshiping the God that so many of the slave masters taught us to worship, Mm -hmm then that was an act of disobedience and the slave would be reprimanded for that. And so as a result of many masters trying to restrain the level of spirituality that slaves had, a slave Bible was printed. And it was printed in London. And in the slave Bible, 90%, Titus, 90%, of the Old Testament was ex- was extracted, taken out. So anything about freedom and Moses and go down Pharaoh and tell old Pharaoh to let my people go, anything about freedom, anything about rest, anything about mm-hmm. God being a God of redemption and forgiveness, rip, 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 out. And 50% of the New Testament was taken out. So That's so old- interesting because usually we assume that the Old Testament is more oppressive, but they felt the need to take out more of the Old Testament. That's very interesting. 
That's very interesting. But it, but see, think of Genesis one. Yeah. That God created us in His image. Think of Exodus twenty. To remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, to rest. Mm-hmm. You know, think of the Exodus. Like, yeah, you're gonna take the Exodus out because that's gonna show you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that you but 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 you but but if you if you rewind be, before we could, there was a time where we couldn't even read so it really didn't matter but and that was what when I talk about Frederick Douglass in chapter in the, in the beginning of the book I talk mm-hmm. about how his his slave master's wife taught him to read but once his slave master discovered that his wife was teaching Douglass to read Douglass had to go because yeah. reading not only was fundamental, but it was an act of freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we get into Frederick Douglass's story a little bit more? You, you tied the, the experience that he had when he was learning to read with a practice known as Lectio Divina or Lexio Divina. How do you pronounce that? I've heard it both ways. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I found that really interesting. Could, could you share more about that? Um, I, I believe he learned to read by reading the Bible, right? Yes, yes. Well, a Lectio Divina is a Latin term for sacred reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Visio Divina is a sacred visual. Mm-hmm. So Lectio Divina not only is a sacred reading, but it's a slowing of a reading. It's a slowing down. So often we learn to, you know, read through the Bible, do our checklist, Genesis, go through the Bible, read the whole Bible. But, Mm -hmm. and that's good. I encourage that. But I also encourage to take time to slow down and to meditate. Uh, The Bible tells us to meditate on the word day and night. So uh, Douglas learned, he initially learned by repetition repeating so that's 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 one one of the steps in lectio is repeating the same words over and over again to to ruminate uh to mm-hmm. ruminate uh translated to to chew on the word like a cow of course a cow mm-hmm. chews on his cud so that's slow reading so but then he also eventually learned to read so not only did he memorize learn through memorization which was a process he learned through repetition and of course the pronunciation and you know the vowels and all that eventually came and so i liken douglas's journey of that slow reading and that meditating and that contemplating on the word to the discipline of lectio divina because when i looked at the landscape of spirituality i couldn't find anybody else that was practicing it you know mm-hmm. who had that slowing of reading and that's why mm-hmm. douglas is attributed to lectio divina yeah. So if someone wants to start that practice, you, you mentioned just slowly reading scripture. Is there anything else you would advise? Yes, I, I have quite a bit. I have the steps to Lectio mm-hmm. in, the, in the book, at the beginning of the book, uh, mm-hmm. how to contemplate, how to meditate, how to slow down in the reading. Uh, one of my favorite passages for slowing a reading is Psalm 4610. And it says, be still and know that I am God. So if we read it a little bit faster, be still and know that I am God. But when we slow it down, be still and know 
that I am God. And in Lectio, you read a passage several times as you slow it down, you focus on a few words, and then you focus on one word, and then you pray that scripture, and you also listen to what God is saying to you about that scripture. So if I could pose a question to you, Titus, as I was saying that scripture, what resonated with you? The word know, I, I got hung up on that one a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. what, what does it mean to know that he is God? Mm-hmm. Whereas if I would just, if you read that really quickly, I'd just be like, oh, I've heard that verse before. <laughs> yeah. And so if you say, so you, let's, let's just stick with the word no. So you heard the word no. And so if you just took a second and thought about what is God saying to you about the word no, what would you say? So the word confidence came to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, trust, confidence. Mm -hmm. And if you turn that, those statements or that word into a prayer, then what would the prayer be? It would it would be a prayer. I, I would pray for God to give me more trust and confidence that He is God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you going to charge me for a session of spiritual direction? Yes, I'm going to send you a bill after this, <laughs> <after> this call. <laughs> and, and you know what I thought about? Do I thought about? Uh, I thought about your children. Mm-hmm. Because there's a knowing that a father desires to have about his children. But you want to know things about that child. You're watching that child. But then uh, there's a knowing you desire them to have. Mm -hmm. So I could go on and on about that word no, but, and you, but I'll just leave that alone right there. (laughs) That's so good. Thanks for kind of modeling that for us. Um, so another Latin term you talk about is visio divina. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that we can see a picture or a painting and through contemplating and meditating on that image or maybe maybe even a scene in nature that we can be drawn closer to God. Um, yeah. How is that? First of all, how is that different than icons? Because <laughs> I, I know that might raise some people's hackles. Is it is it different? How would you distinguish it? Well, I think it's kind of birthed out of the same concept mm-hmm. to gaze on. But as we look at Christocentric theology, we want to keep everything Christ-centered. We're not gazing on a Buddha Mm-hmm. or uh, a rosary where we can mm-hmm. we can gaze on creation god's creation uh to take the time and not to just see a rose but to see a petal and not just to see a petal but to see the dew on the petal or not just to see the dew on the petal but to think about how that rose bush actually got there one day from a seed and so taking the time to appreciate what's around you. I remember one night uh, lying next to my husband and I was like, oh, I just want to practice a little busy. Old my husband. 
That's hilarious. That is hilarious. And so I noticed that he had this little tiny uh, mole right there next to his ear. And I've been married to this man for 44 years. But there are things that pass by us all the time to to cause us to stop. And one of the things I like about the book is Mm -hmm. the artwork and the energy behind the lettering. There's so many Mm -hmm. beautiful things about the cover of this book how the, the lettering bleeds, bleeds through and how there's a globe and how there are, you could see different animals or, or flowers. But I was speaking to a lady the other day and I was like, and this was a woman that was uh, wrestling with having a voice. And so I asked her to look at the book and she looked at it. And then the next thing I knew was that she had turned the book upside down mm-hmm. and she saw the lighter area in the throat of the woman. And Mm -hmm. she said that she sensed that this was saying to her that she needed to get a voice. And so there's always something to look at and to see the moon, the stars, the sun, the trees, people, but to see God's love in the midst of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and his so presence. Good. And his presence. Yeah. Do you have pictures in the book? Because, like I said, I listened to it, and and at the end of each chapter, you encourage us to do a little visio divina. Were those pictures included in it? Did I miss out on that? Yes, you have to get the book oh, now. Man. Now I will have to. And in the book, I have two beautiful illustrations of Jesus, and those are the ones that I consistently refer to at the end of each chapter. Mm-hmm. Because every time you look at these renditions, you see something different. So that's why I keep sending you back to look at it based upon the information in the chapter. But yeah. it's not just it's not just these pictures um, that are important to look at. This is uh, a picture now. Now this is uh, it's it's whatever you you, you see. One time I uh, shared a uh, an illustration of a man and a lamb and a lady saw it as a woman with a puppy. So people people see all kinds of things. But Uh one of the uh, objectives of the pictures at the end of the chapter is for you to see you in a relationship with the Lord. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so a, a lot of my friends and a lot of listeners to this podcast are passionate about things like justice, and they might even be going through like deconstruction. That's a really trendy word. And whenever I try to talk about things like prayer and the spiritual disciplines, I I get a little bit of pushback. Like there's this idea that prayer and, and the spiritual disciplines are legalistic or that, you know, there's been... Lots of conservative Christians who've always been hammering, pray and read your Bible, pray and read your Bible. And then meanwhile, there's abuse that takes place in, in those same settings. And it turns a lot of people off. So how, how would you respond to some of that kind of pushback or that resistance to pursuing the spiritual disciplines? Yeah, that is a very, very good question. The Bible is a book about justice and liberation. Mm-hmm. From um, Exodus to, to the Canaan land, f- freedom in Christ, 
And much of our society has been oppressed. And I definitely hear the voices and the questions about the misuse of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Because as a black woman, a woman of color, an African-American woman, a minority, I understand oppression and being ostracized and being marginalized. But at the end of the day, it is clear that everything around us will end. Heaven's going to, this earth will end. This world will end. Mm -hmm. But the only thing that will sustain us is the word of God. There is freedom in the word of God. And one of the key elements that I find in the Bible, in the word, in life, that speaks freedom is knowing that God loves you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to perform. You don't have to fix anything. You come as you are and know that you are the beloved. And so I think often we are fighting for freedom and fighting for causes out of an empty vessel. Hmm. So how can I get freedom when I'm empty? Freedom comes when you're full and you have enough to give. Um, the, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was with the disciples and this crowd was following him and, 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 and it was like 5,000 of them. And, and, and Jesus was like, feed them. And they were like, well, we only got five loaves and two fishes or two fish. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so Jesus says, feed them. And, um, and so the Bible says he took the bread. He blessed the bread. He broke the bread and he gave the bread. Likewise, we are in a a life where we are taken out of these situations. We're taken out of oppression in our relationship with him. Taken synonymous with chosen. He chooses us and then he blesses us. But that does not mean we do not will not experience difficult times. There is a there is a brokenness in the world, but it's out of our brokenness that we can multiply. Because when the bread was broken, that's when the the bread was multiplied, and out of our brokenness, He gives us to the world to bring about reconciliation, to bring about healing, to bring about difference. But I want to get to that word reconciliation. Mm-hmm. There's so much talk about reconciliation. But reconciliation is taking you back to a healthy relationship. You do not reconcile with a damaged relationship. That's the reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And reconstruction begins with knowing who you are as the beloved of the Lord. Yeah, so good. Um, another interesting thing that I, I noticed reading your book was how prayer and a nonviolent striving for justice seem to go hand in hand. 
And I think that's interesting because I come from an Anabaptist background, and a lot of our listeners are also from that background. So nonviolence is, is really important in our tradition. And I already mentioned that a lot of our, our listeners are are really passionate about justice. And and, and like I said, the, the prayer piece of it often seems to kind of get left behind or, or fall by the wayside. So can you help me convince my friends that, that prayer and a nonviolent striving for justice go hand in hand? Well, that's, that's an easy and difficult question for me because I can't imagine a life without prayer. Yeah. Um, prayer is a mental exercise of communication that brings about affirmation. And it's out of that affirmation that we become healthy individuals. If I'm not healthy myself with my relationship with God and myself, I cannot bring about healing or justice or equity with anybody. So when you talk about prayer not being if you look at prayer as conversation, I think this is the problem with prayer. I think we have boxed prayer in. We have become, we have made prayer a ritual. Prayer is more than being, I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. Eugene Peterson says that prayer, the same words we use in conversation, by the way, so some of you may not, I'm, I'm trusting that most of you know Eugene Peterson, but in case you don't, yeah. let me just remind you, Eugene Peterson is the, the the author of the translation of the Bible, the message translation. Mm-hmm. And his goal in writing the message translation was to make it palatable to his congregation because his congregation wasn't getting with the King James and the new King James and whatever other translation. So he wanted his congregation to understand it and he wrote it so that we could understand it as well. But Eugene Peterson says the same words we use in conversation are the same words we use in prayer and we should choose them wisely. Hmm. Paul says in first Thessalonians five, to pray without ceasing. That is to have a lifestyle of prayer. That's the only thing the, the Bible tells us to do without ceasing. But Paul also says that the things that we do not know to pray for, that the spirit within us is praying. So whether you acknowledge you're praying or not, prayer is still going on because it's just built into your very being. Mm-hmm. And so the, the stagnation of prayer becomes a hindrance for believers because we feel like we may have to get on our knees. We have to pray for 20 minutes, but make prayer a conversation, make prayer fun, prayer walk, prayer journal, prayer partner, prayer jogging, prayer shower, prayer singing, prayer writing. Just free yourself to be creative. And then one of the other things that happens in prayer is when, when God shifts us, shifts us, from this, this speaking posture to more of a list, listening posture. To be still and to hear him speak to you. And when God speaks, God speaks his word. So when we talk about civil rights, 
we talk about justice, we can't get away from Second Chronicles 7.14. What are we going to do? Cut that out the Bible? Mm-hmm. If we want the land healed, if we want to have a land with all that we have going on in foreign countries and all the wars that go on, are going on with us coming out of a pandemic, has our nation even stopped to bow, to humble ourselves, to repent? Like the kids say, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 but the nonviolent piece, uh, mm-hmm. Howard Thurman, studied with Gandhi and mm-hmm. Howard Thurman introduced Martin Luther King to Gandhi. So that's part of the nonviolent lifestyle. Yeah. So that's how we get, that's how it's connected. And it was, it was, it, it was, it was prayer that undergirded the civil rights movement. Martin Luther mm-hmm. King's father, mother, wife, himself, his church. I don't, I, I, I can't, I can't imagine a life without prayer. Yeah. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up here, um, if someone's listening to this and and they're wondering what what's a good first step, you know, I want to engage the spiritual disciplines. I want to be spiritually formed. Um, do you have anything in closing you'd like to encourage us with? Well, one thing I thought about uh, Titus as it relates to prayer is the ACTS acronym. Many of the listeners perhaps have heard about the ACTS acronym, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And many mm-hmm. listeners have probably heard about the will. Can you pray for an hour of uh, praise and worship and listening and meditation and contemplation and reading and silence and watching? So for me, for, really, spiritual formation is this big umbrella. It's this big arch and all the disciplines come under spiritual formation. Prayer comes under spiritual formation, meditation, contemplation, silence, solitude, and rest. And that's one thing I do want to say that it's important that you do rest. And one of the reasons uh, that we have so much sickness in our lives is we don't rest. And to rest is not to trust God. So rest is a commandment. So what I want to say to the audience. Let's not fight a losing battle in trying to reinvent the wheel. The wheel is already invented. Uh, So uh, God asked Paul, why are you fighting against the way that's going to work? And I know when you're young, you want to fight. But if the way is working, Jesus says, I am the way. So no matter how angry we don't like, how much we don't like things, no matter how angry we become, God's way and God's word works. So I encourage you, if you are serious about your relationship with the Lord, to spend time with him and to be honest with him. If you are challenged with prayer and disciplines, be honest. But don't deny the effectiveness of thousands of years of the word of God. Don't end up Mm -hmm. bankrupt trying to reinvent 
the process. I'm not saying don't embrace religiosity. There's a difference between spirituality and religiosity. And some of mm-hmm. the things that have happened in the church obviously are not of God. God is not happy with it. But don't allow hypocrites to deter your intimacy with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good good word to end on, um, especially for those of us who are younger and sometimes sort of jaded. Um, at the end of each chapter, you included a prayer and then a section of listening to God's voice. Um, and so one thing we're trying to incorporate into this podcast is a little liturgy at the end of every show. And so I thought, wow, this would be perfect now that we have Dr. Peacock on, if she would just read one of those sections, um, if you just read it yourself. So yeah, if, if you have a favorite there, um, do you mind sharing that with us to, to wrap us up here? Uh, thank you, Titus. I would like to read from chapter 9 on page 132 for those of you that may have it and would like to follow along. Dear God, I sincerely thank you that I have a prayer life with you. I confess that my communing with you does not fully exemplify the one I desire to have. Nonetheless, I am thankful that I do have an intimate relationship with you. Today, I ask you to forgive me for the mornings, days, and nights when I hurry through talking and listening to you. Forgive me for the times when I conclude in prayer and ask myself, what did I just say? Forgive me for the times I do not listen to your directives and obviously do not follow them. So now, God, I humbly ask you to help me to be more purposeful in my devotional life. Help me not to be too busy to pray. Help me to slow down in my prayer life so I will be more purposeful on my journey. And then God responds. My dear child, my beloved, I know you inside and out. I know the desires of your heart beyond your wildest imagination. I know deep down in your heart and soul that you desire to be with me more intimately. I know you desire to pray, even though the vicissitudes of life continually crowd out our sacred fellowship. I do hear your prayers, even when you forget what you prayed. I hear you even as you hurry off to the next thing on your checklist. Yes, my dear child, I will help you. I will guide you. My spirit is with you even now to slow you down and to put you in touch with me like never before. I look forward to your more purposeful prayers as you seek to discover where I am working in your life. 
Amen. Thank you so much. Amen.